and faculty treated my kids like they were their own. Shiloh is a, is a place where, you know, your kids can come and be themselves. The staff is very open to things that the parents have to say. To enroll your child in Shiloh's Early Learning Academy, call 225-343-4734. Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God? All right, we're going to wrap up today the, the Bible study on generous giving, and we want to start by reviewing what we have covered thus far. Uh, we, this is week number six, so there are five things that we want to review uh, as we move forward into uh, today's study. And then we want to close by uh, looking at some concluding remarks, and then we want to leave you with a brief exercise that we want you to do, exercise that you can do for yourselves personally. When we started this Bible study in week one, we tried to draw a distinction between generosity and stewardship. For those who were with us at that time, we, we tried to make the point that while there is certainly nothing wrong with stewardship, the proper management of the resources that God has placed in our care, generosity goes a step beyond stewardship in that stewardship uh, has with it the idea of obligation has with it the idea that, that this is something that we must do, whereas generosity has to do with an attitude of wanting to do what God said do. We, we, we said at the time that there are things that we do because we feel like we must, and there's a difference between doing what we must and doing what we may. Uh, Stewardship is something that, 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 that the way that we teach it in church, the way we teach it in Bible study, the way that we talk about it is something that we must do. Generosity, however, has to do with an attitude of loving care that reflects the character of God, which has reshaped us. We quoted from this book, uh, Robert Schnaze, I understand that's how you pronounce his last name, uh, Practicing Extravagant Generosity. And uh, in quoting him, we said that generosity is an aspect of character. It focuses on the spiritual qualities of the giver derived from the generosity of God rather than on the church's need for money. It is not a spiritual attribute someone acquires apart from the actual practice of giving. It becomes discernible through action. In other words, one can't say that he's generous without actually practicing 
generosity. You can't keep everything you got in your pockets and say, well, I'm really a generous person. You can't tell it by, by, by what you see, but I'm really a generous person. Generosity is something that you don't have to say anything about. It, it, it is evident in your behavior. So week one, we tried to draw a distinction between generosity and stewardship. We said that, that stewardship is arithmetic and generosity is mathematics or calculus. It, it, it's a higher form because it has to do more with an attitude, a desire, a willingness to do rather than simply an obligation to do. In week two, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. And we tried to suggest that generosity has to prevail over covetousness. Covetousness adversely impacts generous giving. By definition, what is covetousness? Covetousness is the illicit desire to have what belongs to somebody else. It is, it is the desire to have what somebody else has. What, what is this? You see what somebody else has and you say, that's what I want. Generosity, on the other hand, is the godly desire for others in need to have what we possess. In other words, I'm not concerned about getting what you have. I'm concerned about helping someone who doesn't have, have their needs met. That's what the generous person is to do. You can't be covetous and generous at the same time. Simply doesn't work. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, quickly, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And let's look at verses 6 through 15. Remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. God loves it when the giver delights in giving. God can pour on the blessings in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything, more than just ready to do what needs to be done. Stewardship. You follow that? As one psalmist puts it, he throws caution to the winds, giving to the needy in reckless abandon. His right living, right giving ways never run out, never wear out. This most generous God, who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant with you. He gives you something you can then give away, which grows into full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us great praise to God. Carrying out this social relief work involves far more than helping meet the bare needs of 
poor Christians. It also produces abundant and bountiful thanksgivings to God. This relief offering is a prod to live at your very best, showing your gratitude to God by being openly obedient to the plain meaning of the message of Christ. You show your gratitude through your generous offerings to your needy brothers and sisters and really toward everyone. Meanwhile, moved by the extravagance of God in your lives, they'll respond by praying for you in passionate intercession for whatever you need. Thank God for this gift, his gift. No language can praise it enough. Paul tells us here that if we are to overcome our natural desire towards covetousness, then we must adopt a spirit of generosity. And that spirit of generosity is seen in at least four ways. Number one, the way we sow is the way we reap. A stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish Crop. Number two, when we sow generously, God allows us to reap bountifully so that we may be able to give even more. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme, as some would try to suggest. This is not, well, if you do this in this way, God's going to bless you so that you have even more than you give. And that's where some of the, the TV preachers stop. What they don't add is whatever God gives you, he in turn wants you to give it back. To give back to others so that those who don't have can be blessed just as well as you are. It is the desire of God that we adopt Christ's attitude of love for one another that makes it easy for us to give up what we have in recognition that we have more than what we need. And it's okay to share with someone who does not have. Third, when we sow generously, we reap things that are more than monetary. The other thing that the TV preachers love to tell you is that if you plant a $10 seed, you're going to get a $20 crop. If you're praying a $50 seed, you're going to get a $100 crop as though everything is about money. People pour into your lives with more than just money. And that pouring into your life is a response to the generosity that we have shown toward others. Fourth, no matter how generous we are, Paul wants us to be mindful of the fact that our generosity pales in comparison to the generosity that has been shown toward us through the gift of his son, Jesus the Christ. So that was week two, generosity prevailing over covetousness. In week three, we looked at what we called a practicum on selfishness. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 31. And it's a long passage, so we're not going to read it. But in that passage, we looked at Jesus's parable of the rich, foolish farmer who received a bountiful harvest and kept it all for himself, thinking that everything was going to be fine, only to find out that once he got everything stored up, 
God said your soul is required of you. In that parable, Jesus helps us to understand why generosity is so important. Three things we want to lift up. Number one, the selfish forget who's in control of their lives. Read the parable. Everything the man says is me, mine, I. What shall I do? My barns aren't big enough. I don't have enough room to sort of, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my old barns. I'll build new ones. And then I'll say to my soul, soul, take your rest. Eat, drink, and be merry. When our whole lives are filled with personal pronouns about us, and we don't recognize the goodness of God, then we, we, we show that we forget who's really in control of our lives. And it's not us. It's God. Number two, Jesus wants us to understand that the selfish forget that responsibility accompanies the blessing. Oh, how we ask God to bless us. Give me this. Help me with that. Bless me with the other. And yet, when God blesses us in the ways that we have requested to be blessed, how many of us recognize that there is a responsibility that accompanies the blessing? Jesus says when, when, when he teaches the model prayer in Luke uh, chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 6, the blessing of being forgiven goes right along with the requirement that we forgive other people. You can't claim one. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, you can't claim one if you're not willing to give the other. You can't claim the, the, the blessing if you're not willing to live up to the responsibility. In the same way, how is it possible for Christian folk, saved, sanctified, heaven-bound, Bible-quoting, Bible-toting folk, to claim all that God has done for you and not recognize your responsibility to do for others. How, how do you do that? How do you make that thing work? Jesus says it, it, you can't claim the privilege without also recognizing the responsibility. The third thing he teaches in the parable is that the true goal of life is not our personal enrichment, but to be a part of the enriching of other lives. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus says to his disciples, as I have loved you, so should you love one another. And part of that love is giving. Part of that love is being a blessing to those who are in need of being blessed. And so, if we recognize that the goal of life is not self-enrichment, but the enrichment of others, if we make that attitudinal shift in our minds and in our hearts, then it's not such a difficult thing to recognize our responsibility to God to be a blessing to others. The other thing I want to say with regard to the parable, and we said this that week, 
is that what this man did in the parable, and Jesus, of course, because it's a parable, it's not a true story. It's a story that he tells to make a point. Jesus makes the point that the man goes out of his way to not help other people. He goes out of his way to break the law. Remember, this whole thing got started with a question that was asked of Jesus about the law. Lord, make my brother give me my fair share of our parents' inheritance, of my father's inheritance. He was asking a legal question. Jesus says, when your heart is ruled by selfishness, you'll throw the law away. Because the law said, once you had everything that you needed from your fields, you were required to leave something behind for those who did not have. It was called the gleanings. And if you don't leave the gleanings in the field, then you have broken the law. The man goes out of his way to keep it all. I'm going to tear down old barns, build new ones, so nobody can have what I got but me. How many of us are willing to break the rules in order to keep what we want? And is that an attitude of Christ? Is that an attitude of love? That was week number three. Week number four, we looked at tithes and offerings. Malachi chapter three, verses six through 12, where Malachi talks about our responsibility to bring the total tithe, bring all the tithe, bring the whole tithe, to the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now, test me, if you will. And in that lesson, we tried to make the point that tithing is important in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. It is the scriptural method of honoring God. And for those who are not clear on this who think that, that, that tithing is just a legal issue. And, and since we're no longer under the law, then we shouldn't worry about tithing. I, we, we remind you, tithing predates the law. First mention of the tithe is not in the law. First mention of the tithe is in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. Just like love is not mentioned first in the law. Just like forgiveness is not mentioned first in the law. Just like mercy is not mentioned first in the law. So, 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 so if none of these other things were mentioned first in the law, but were mentioned prior to the law being given, then the same reverence that we give to those things, don't you think we ought to give that same reverence to the tithe? In that it predates the law. Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils, of, of his plunder, to Melchizedek as an offering to the Lord. Tithing is a consistent and fair method of worship. It is consistent because we are only asked to give back regularly as we have received. Nobody's asking you to give if you have not received anything. It is fair because the measure of our giving is not based on an artificial standard, but based on a personal standard. Only what you have received is what you are asked to give. 
It is practical and tangible as an expression of our faith. It is something that we want to do to show our appreciation to God for what he has done. And that bears directly on what we're going to get to in Psalm 116. And then we said that it requires intentionality. You don't stumble on tithing. You don't accidentally tithe. You tithe because you make the intentional effort to do so. And that's going to get down to the exercise that we do at the end. Then last time we were together, we, we moved from the tithe to talking about systematic and proportionate giving. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And we tried to make the point that our giving is not to an individual, but to God. It is not to the church. We bring the gift to the church, but we are not giving to the church. We're giving to God through the church. Our giving is a recognition of our honor and our worship of God. And it is with this gift that the church meets its physical needs and its missionary endeavors. Our giving is to be systematic, which goes right along with the whole idea of tithing. But we made the point that most of us do not tithe. If you do, God bless you. I ain't talking to you. How y'all doing? If you tithe and you watching me on TV, God bless you. But there are a whole lot of folk who don't. 95% of church-going people do not tithe. Last time I was with you, I told you it was 97%. I said only 3% of people tithe. Well, I, I looked it up last week. The number has gone from 3% to 5%. 95% of church-going people do not tithe. I want that to sink in. 95% do not give God a dime out of every dollar that he has given to you. So that when, when we do all that, 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 that proclamation praying that we do and that testimony stuff that we do about woke me up this morning and started me on my way and keeps health in my body and sanity in my mind and food on my table and clothes on my back and a roof over my head and money in my pocket. But you can't give God a dime out of the money that he put in your pocket. It's, it it kind of rings hollow. But we said this to, to, to help y'all who don't tithe, to help the 95% of y'all who don't tithe. We said that if you, if you have not yet reached the spiritual level where you can tithe, whatever you do give, you ought to give it on a regular basis. If it's less than, than the tithe, whatever it is, you ought to do it regularly. Bills come to your house every month. Entergy. Baton Rouge water, cable, AT&T, come to your house every month. Bills come to the church house every month, too. 
and, and, and it is through the giving of the church that the needs of the church are met. It is through the giving of the church that the needs of individuals who are in trouble are met. So if you have not reached the level where it's okay for you to tithe, and when I say that, I mean this. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 where it says God loves a cheerful giver. If you can't do it cheerfully, don't do it. But whatever you do, do it on a regular basis. Systematic, proportionate giving. So, those are the five lessons that we have covered up to this point. Today, we want to wrap everything up. It took 27 minutes to do that. We want to wrap everything up by looking at the 116th Psalm. Perhaps the best way to expand the limits of our generosity is for us to remember just how generous God has been toward us. So let's hear the 116th Psalm. I love God because he listened to me, listened as I begged for mercy. He listened so intently as I laid out my case before him. Death stared me in the face. Hell was hard on my heels. Up against it, I didn't know which way to turn. Then I called out to God for help. Please, God, I cried out, save my life. God is gracious. It is he who makes things right our most compassionate God. God takes the side of the helpless. When I was at the end of my rope, he saved me. I said to myself, relax and rest. God has showered you with blessings. So, you've been rescued from death. I, you've been rescued from tears. And you, foot, were kept from stumbling. I'm striding in the presence of God, alive in the land of the living. I stayed faithful, though bedeviled, and despite a ton of bad luck, despite giving up on the human race, saying they're all liars and cheats, what can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out on me? I'll lift high the cup of salvation, a toast to God. I'll pray in the name of God. I'll complete what I promised God I'd do, and I'll do it together with his people. When they arrive at the gates of death, God welcomes those who love him. Oh God, here I am, your servant, your faithful servant. Set me free for your service. I'm ready to offer the thanksgiving sacrifice and pray in the name of God. I'll complete what I promised God I'd do, and I'll do it in company with his people in the place of worship in God's house in Jerusalem, God's city. Hallelujah. 
Psalm 116 is one of the most personal of the Thanksgiving Psalms listed in the scripture. It is composed of three distinct parts. There is first a declaration of praise. Then there is a recollection of the troubles that the psalmist experienced and how God delivered him from them. And third, there is a description of the psalmist's intention of generosity. And I want you to know that the psalmist makes it very clear, not once but twice, the generosity I'm going to show before God, I ain't going to do it in secret. I ain't going to do it in my closet. I'm going to do it with my fellow brothers and sisters. We're going to come together and we're going to worship God together in this. It is going to be a public expression of thanksgiving. The general theme of the psalm is a reflection on a past experience of need and how God met the need. But the distinctive character of the psalmist here is not just a testimony of what God did for him, but what in turn he will do for God. And that's what we want to focus in on. We want to talk about the response of generosity based on what God has done for us. I love God, he says, because he listened to me. Listened as I begged for mercy. He listened so intently as I laid out my case before him. Death stared me in the face. Hell was hard on my heels. Up against it, I didn't know which way to turn. Then I called out to God for help. Please, God, I cried out, save my life. God is gracious. It is he who makes things right. Our most compassionate God, God takes the side of the helpless. When I was at the end of my rope, he saved me. Now, for our purposes, we're, we're only looking at this psalm as a way of discussing giving generously. There's more that can be said about this psalm than what we are going to say. We're tailoring our comments to deal with the whole idea of generosity. Keeping that in mind and the context of this psalm, it helps us to understand that the psalmist lists reasons for us to be generous to God. There are at least four that he lists here in these, ver in, in these verses. Number one, he says, God is attentive. Three times in the first verse, he says, he listens. He listens to me. He listens as I cry out and make my case. He listened as I begged for mercy. For the psalmist, one reason for us to be generous toward God in response to his generosity toward us is because God is attentive. Who among us doesn't love God because he attends to us? Have you ever tried to talk to somebody who ain't listening? You probably do it more often than you even want to admit. I 
find that, that, that people are great talkers and poor listeners? I said before when we were going through James, James talks about be slow to talk and quick to listen, eager to listen. I, I, I made the point that most people don't listen at all. They just wait for you to, to run out of breath so that there's a pause so that they can say what they want to say. They're not really listening to what you have to say. But the psalmist says, when I couldn't get anybody else to listen, tithing is a source of anxiety for, for many people. Life is a source of anxiety for some people. You start telling somebody about what, your, what crazy thing your child has done, because I'm talking to people in here who are parents and grandparents. You start telling somebody about what crazy thing your, your child or your grandchild has done, and, and now it becomes a competition. They want to tell you, well, you think that's something. Let me tell you what mine did. You didn't ask for that. You weren't talking for that. You're looking to share. And you want someone to empathize, to feel what you feel. The psalmist says he listened. He listened. Three times in one verse, he listened. God is generous because he is attentive. Second, he says that he is gracious. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. God is gracious. It's written right out there in the psalm. And so a second reason for us to, 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 to be generous toward God is an acknowledgement of how gracious he is, how he has blessed us far beyond anything that we could possibly deserve. Third, he talks about God's compassion. Grace is unmerited favor. Compassion is another word for mercy. We like to say that, that grace and mercy are flip sides of the same coin. Grace is God's unearned, unmerited favor, and mercy is God's next chance after we boo the last chance. We, we, we used to say second chance, but all of us are too old now to just talk about second chances. I'm on my 5,966th chance. And that's probably too small a number. It's another chance. The compassion of God is an acknowledgement that even when we blew through the last chance that he gave us, He's there to give us yet another one. And then fourth, his deliverance. He says, God takes the side of the helpless. And he says, God saved me. When I was at the end of my rope, he saved me. You need to understand, the word salvation is, is, is another way of saying deliverance. Salvation and deliverance mean exactly the same thing. 
God as our salvation, Christ as our Savior, means that God has delivered us from a bad thing to a good thing. Jesus as our Savior delivered us from hell into eternal life, the assurance of eternal life. It has to do with being delivered from something negative to something positive. He says that I acknowledge the generosity of God because he delivered, he saved me. He listened to me. He's gracious towards me. He's compassionate and merciful to me, and he delivered me. He gives you at least four reasons. That's not intended to be an exhaustive list, but it is intended to let you know I got reasons to love the Lord. I love God. And let me tell you why. Then he says, I said to myself, relax and rest. God has showered you with blessings. So you've been rescued from death. I, you've been rescued from tears, and you, foot, were kept from stumbling. I'm striding in the presence of God, alive in the land of the living. I stayed faithful, though bedeviled, and despite a ton of bad luck, despite giving up on the human race, saying they're all liars and cheats. The initial reaction to God's generosity on the part of the psalmist is relief. I said to myself, relax and rest. That's a statement of relief. Is that not the natural response to deliverance? If you've been delivered from something, then all that anxiety that you felt is gone. And now you're overcome with relief. Specifically, the psalmist says that he has been relieved from three dangers. And these relate to us. Danger number one, permanent spiritual estrangement. He does not say that I was rescued from death. He says, soul, read it. He says, soul. You've been rescued from death. That's more than physical death. Let me make something clear to you if you didn't know this by now. You're going to die. Physically, you're going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, everybody sitting in here is going to die. So this is not relief from the idea of physical death. He says, soul, you have been rescued from death. That has to do with a spiritual estrangement from God. Do you want to know what hell is? I don't know if hell is fire and brimstone and perpetual burning. I do know that hell is being where God ain't. Hell is to be eternally estranged from God. And so when he says, I have relief, I told myself that I could rest and relax. The first reason why I can rest and relax is because God delivered me from estrangement from him. Second, he says that he has been rescued 
from tears. Eyes, you've been rescued from tears. That has to do with human mourning and misery. Some people can't get over crying for one thing before something else comes up. Y'all ever watch Hee Haw? Y'all remember Hee Haw? You used to come on Saturday afternoons at 5 o'clock. There, there, there was a thing that they did on Hee Haw where, where four guys would get up and they would sing, Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. Deep, Dark Depression, Excessive Misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Some of us live like that. It's one degree of sadness and sorrow followed by another. But the psalmist says, I have been delivered from mourning and misery. And so I feel relief. Third, he says, foot, you were kept from stumbling. What happens when we're caught up in anxiety? Anxiety causes us to make decisions that are not always wise and prudent. Anxiety and worry and misery and despair often causes us to make decisions that are contrary to the will of God. And so when he says, foot, you were kept from stumbling, he's saying that because of God's deliverance, when I was thinking about doing wrong, God led me in a different direction. I have relief. My soul has been saved from estrangement. My eyes are no longer wet with tears of sorrow and mourning. And God has kept me on the path of righteousness instead of on a path towards sinfulness. I have reason to feel relief. And as the psalmist expresses his relief, every believer ought to be able to express relief for these things and more. I want you to be very careful about this. The writer commends himself for remaining faithful under difficult circumstances. Read what he says. I'm striding in the presence of God, alive in the land of the living. I stayed faithful, though bedeviled, despite a ton of bad luck, despite giving up on the human race. He commends himself for remaining faithful under difficult circumstances. But even the commendation is rooted in the fact that it was God who made it possible. See, here's the difference between what is said in this psalm and what Jesus gives us in the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool never talks about God. The rich fool never even consults God. Everything is about him. Whereas here, the psalmist says, yes, I stayed faithful, but I stayed faithful because God helped me stay faithful. Did you know that you can't stay faithful on your own? Did you know that you need help to stay faithful? Paul says, when I would do good, 
evil is present on every hand. And then he asked the question, who will help me? Who will deliver me? And then he says, thanks be to God. Yes, I stayed faithful because God helped me stay faithful. Yes, I stayed true because God helped me to stay true. Don't ever get so caught up in you that you forget that it wasn't you, but it was God who did it for you. When I was a little boy, my father would come home on, on, on weekday afternoons, and whenever he, he pulled up to the house, I would run out to the car. And, and, and before he could get out, because if he got out the car, it was too late. I had to catch him while he was still in the car. And I would open the door, and I would jump in his lap. And I'd say, Daddy, let me drive. I'm three, four, five years old. And so he would sit me on his lap, and he would let me hold the steering wheel. Now, he had the accelerator. He had the brake. And if I ever turned the wheel too far, he grabbed the wheel. But we would go around the block, and I just knew. I was driving. I'm four years old, and I can drive a car. I, I thought I was doing it. And my daddy would have to remind me, now look, don't you pull that wheel, but so far. And, and, and I try to reach my little foot down. For, no, 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 keep your foot off of that. <laughs> What's my point? We get like that with God sometimes. We, we're doing well, and, and, and we all of a sudden think that we're the ones who are doing it. Don't ever get so full of you that you forget God's the one who's got his foot on the accelerator. God's the one who's got his foot on the brake. And if you turn the wheel too far one way or the other, God's going to grab the wheel. God is the one who keeps us. God is the one who protects us. God is the one who watches over us. So the psalmist says, I'm striding with God because I can't trust nobody else. He says, I've been bedeviled. That means that, 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 that Satan is on my trail. And every time I think I'm free of Satan, he pops up in somebody else. He says, I've had a ton of bad luck. Now, you and I don't believe in luck. But, but, but that's what the psalmist says. That, that's the way Peterson translates it. I've had a ton of bad luck. Who in here has not gone from one bad problem to another? Have you ever read Job? Where it says the fields were torn up and, and, and as soon as the report came that the fields were torn up, before he could catch his breath, the next guy said all the livestock were stolen and all the servants were killed. And before he could catch his breath, the next one comes and says, your children were all killed in a storm when the house collapsed. Who has not felt like Job when you just had one thing mounting on top of another? The psalmist says, in spite of all of that, God has kept me. And then he says, what well, you and I should, surely must know by now. And that is, ain't nobody else any good. That's what he says. He says, despite giving up on the human race, saying they're all liars and cheats. 
We know that people can't be trusted. We know circumstances can't be trusted. The psalmist says, I'm making it because I can trust in one and one only. And that one is God. That gets me down to the crux of what we want to talk about. What can I give back to God? For the blessings he's poured out on me. Response. For all that he has done for me, what can I do in response to him? Understand, the psalmist knows that he can't give back equal to what God has done for him. But he says, I can do certain things that are proportionate to the goodness that I have received from God. I'll lift high the cup of salvation, a toast to God. That is, I will honor God. I'll pray in the name of God. That is, I will respect God. I'll complete what I promised God I do, and I'll do it together with his people. That is, I will make a commitment to God. Now, let me pause there because I got two more. Let, let, let me pause there on, on the commitment part. He says, I'll complete what I promised I would do. Let me ask you, what, what have you promised the Lord? When you gave Jesus your heart and your life, what did you promise him? I am on the battlefield for my love. I am on. Y'all like that song. Y'all, y'all, I watch y'all when we sing that. Y'all rocking. And then it gets to, and I promised him that I would serve him till I die. Really? Really? The psalmist says, I will complete what I promised. Which leads you to have to ask yourself the question, what did I promise God I would do? The song says, serve him till I die. Serving means do everything that he said do. Which means that I'm going to love the way he said love. How you doing on that? I'm going to forgive the way he forgave and the way he taught me to forgive. How you doing on that? I'm going to serve to minister to the needs of other people the way he served to minister to my need. How you doing on that? That's what you promised when you said I gave my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. That's what you promised. How do you feel about folk who make you promises and then don't keep them? Y'all, y'all don't like folk who make promises and don't keep them. Y'all got names for folk who make promises and don't keep them. Do you want God to call you what you call the folk who make promises to you that you don't keep? He said, I'll complete what I promised. And he adds this, I will do it together.
together with his people. I'm not going to estrange myself from other folk, even though they ain't no good. I'm going to go with them anyway. I'm going to serve with them anyway. I'm going to love with them anyway. Then he says, I will minister to the needs of others. He says, thank you because you have set me free for your service. Do you know that you have to be free to serve? Do you know that you can't serve if you're bound? First thing Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 when he comes down out of the wilderness and he goes to Nazareth, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to do what? To set the captive free. In order to truly serve the Lord, you have to know liberation. You have to be free. Free to serve as God would have you serve. Because if you're not free, then you're under some previous obligation that you can use as a reason not to serve. The way I, I'd love to do it, but y'all know folk who make those kinds of excuses, right? He says that part of our proportionate response is ministry. And finally, he says, generosity. He says, I'm ready to offer the Thanksgiving sacrifice. You can't be generous without acknowledging that generosity involves sacrifice. Generosity involves giving up something. And, and that's what sacrifice is. It's giving up something. You can't serve God. How did you get to be saved? God made a sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How did you get to be saved? Jesus made a sacrifice. Lord, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son might also glorify you. The psalmist says that in response to God's generosity towards us, we have to be generous toward him. And that generosity is found in honor, respect, commitment, ministry, and generosity. Generosity helps us to achieve God's purposes in ourselves. It is not merely a matter of our service to others, but it is for the spiritual growth of ourselves. I got two minutes left. I, I want you to do this exercise. Everybody take out a piece of paper. This ain't going to take long. Everybody take a, I know y'all already packed up all your stuff. You're ready to go. Everybody take out a piece of paper. If you don't have a piece of paper, just do it in your head. I don't want anybody to tell anybody I don't want anybody looking on anybody else's pieces of paper. I want everybody to do this for themselves. On a piece of paper, write down 
the gross of what you regularly receive, whether you receive it weekly, every two weeks, monthly, however you receive it. If, if, if you have to go to annually, because some people don't receive the same amount every time, write out the gross of what you receive. Put it on a piece of paper. With your pencil or pen, move the decimal point one place to the left. Did you do that? That indicates the tithe of your income. Now, in your head, measure what you actually give to God's church against what that piece of paper says is your tithe. If your giving is greater than that number, then you're in the 5% that tithe. If your giving is less than that number, we encourage you to ask God to help you to become more generous toward him in proportion to how generous he has been to you. since I can remember, uh, my family has always been involved in music. When we were young, uh, my mom and my dad played uh, at our family church, and we would essentially provide the music for it. So uh, as far as that much uh, goes, it's, it's just always been in my life uh, in, in some form or fashion. Started uh, with my family at first, uh, and then it just kind of grew. Uh, when I, At the school that I, uh, I went to, there was a need for musicians. So it didn't matter that I was in second grade or third grade. Uh, could you play the piano? Yes, <laughs> we need you for a service. So, um, a lot of a lot of it, I was doing it, and I guess I fell in love with it before I knew that it wasn't something that everybody did, just because I grew up with it. 